If you've ever wondered just how astonishing it was to have been in attendance at the Salon Indien de Grand Café on the Boulevard de Capucines in Paris on December the 28th, 1895, when the Lumiere brothers screened a collection of the very first films, being at the AMC Theatre in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia on April the 18th might have given you a good impression. For the first time in over 35 years, a cinema screening took place in the kingdom. There had been Sun Cinemas in the country back in the early 1980s, but they were closed as a result of the Islamist influence that quickly gained traction throughout the Arab region in the wake of the Iranian Revolution in 1979. The Riyadh screening is just one element within the ambitious economic and social reforms being ushered in by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Other examples of his reforms include women being allowed to drive cars, attend football matches, and sit in unsegregated public spaces with men other than their fathers, husbands, brothers or sons. The film chosen to reintroduce the Saudi public to the cinema-going experience was the sixth film in the third phase of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. The way I announced Black Panther may sound pedantic, but I detail it to illustrate a point. Ryan Coogler's film was the 18th production in the MCU series, which means an entire generation of Saudis have grown up not knowing what it is like to sit in a darkened room and have a beam of light shine from behind you and for images to cascade from that light across a silken screen transporting them into the MCU. But it doesn't have to be an MCU, where characters trust in spandex are modified and augmented by oceans of CGI pixels. The images can be from worlds just like yours, or better still, lives just like yours. A young Saudi child going to school, doing homework and playing with friends. And you want to ride a bike, but you're not allowed because you're a girl and because Sharia law forbids it. This is the beguilingly simple premise for the multi-award winning Wajda. Released in 2012, it stands as another first in Saudi cinema because it is the very first film to have been made entirely in the country. What makes it even more noteworthy is it was written and directed by a Saudi woman, Haifa Al-Mansur, and the film is about a young girl who dreams of owning a bike. But Wajda, played by Vwad Mohammed, is 10 years old and so she cannot buy it on her own. She hopes her father will help, but, although he is wealthy, she rarely sees him. He is unhappy because Vajda's mother can have no more children, and so he is seeking a second wife. Vajda hopes her mother, played by Reem Abdullah, will be able to help, but she loses her job when her driver refuses to take her to work. Her father sends money, but instead of giving Vajda some of it so she can buy the bike, her mother spends it on a new dress, all in the vain attempt that it will help her win her husband back. As for Vajda herself, she decides to raise the money by making plated friendship bracelets and selling them to a trader in the local market. But the trader only deals in bulk shipments from China. Now, you have probably noticed the frequency with which I've been using the conjunction, but. That is because Western storytelling rotates around that three-lettered monosyllabic word. Contrary to popular belief, 
Storytelling is not about fluency of narrative, where one event flows spontaneously into another. Rather, it is all about disruption. The trajectory of each event is interrupted from its organic course, and that direction must be regained in order for forward momentum to be maintained. Which means that while Vajda's quest for a bike sounds meagre and simple, it is the scale of her quest in the face of overwhelming odds that makes for a compelling scenario. Those odds are not just her parents, they are social, cultural and legal. Not to mention religiously grounded and gender specific. Here is Mansoor addressing the challenges of presenting a story for an international audience that expects certain structures when Mansoor's native storytelling tradition practices a very different form. Writing was difficult because I come from an oral culture. That is, um, we say we have a lot of poetry, but we don't have storytelling and structured storytelling. And um, I did my master in film. I wrote the first draft as part of that um, of that of my master degree, but um, but it was really bad. <laughs> so I hadn't had to go through a lot of revisions. And um, I was very grateful for a lot of places where I submitted the film and got support, like Sundance Writers Lab. That was very, it's a great experience. And after I had them, and they put like a good word for me when I was trying to find producers. But in the Middle East, it was very hard to convince people to come on board because the film was too subtle. Nothing is happening, no melodramatic, <laughs> melodramatic things. <laughs> like, and the, subtle doesn't sell in the Middle East. <laughs> they want more drama, you know. Clearly, what Mansour is referring to is the different storytelling traditions that have developed in different cultures throughout the world. And depending on the cultures, those narrative rituals have either been oral, literary, or the most modern, cinematic. However, because two of those traditions are so old, they were able to develop independently of other cultures. By the time cinema was established, the semblance of global culture via electricity was already emerging. So, a form of storytelling dominated, for obvious reasons by Hollywood, has for almost a century now been dictating audience expectation. While in the early days of filmmaking, scriptwriters were intuiting their way through the form, in the last four decades, Joseph Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces, Sid Field's screenplay and Robert McKee's story have become templates for movie executives. Here is another scriptwriting guru, John Truby, being interviewed by Connie Martinson in 2007, shortly after the publication of The Anatomy of Story, 22 Steps to Becoming a Master Storyteller. Regardless of what medium that you're working in, what genre you might be working in, if it's a good story, it will have desire. And in a good story, the hero will have a very specific goal that he or she is going to try to accomplish by the end of the story. Now, this goal is extremely important to the quality of the story because it's the spine that the story rests on. So I always tell people, when you're starting off writing a first draft of a story, whether it's for a screenplay or a novel, start by figuring out what your hero's goal is and hang everything off of that. The weakness need is the wellspring of the whole story. If you don't establish something that's deficient in that main mm -hmm. character, then no growth can occur. And what the audience is most concerned about, even though they don't know it consciously, is they want to see that character grow by the end of the story. And what that means is fulfilling that need, that something that's missing inside, that's so deep that it's hurting their life. Now, as Mansour said, she found it difficult to raise money for her film within her native Saudi Arabia. But 
Yes, I use the conjunction. Studying at the Sundance Institute in Park City, Utah, her tutors arrange for introductions to European financiers. But, again but, in order to satisfy their perception of a good, marketable story, Mansour had to tailor her plot. In other words, in order to tell a story specific to Arab culture, Mansour had to impose narrative conventions from a foreign culture. Is this a problem? It can be. Some people would call it cultural imperialism. However, we need to temper that position. For example, Akira Kurosawa adapted two Shakespeare plays to the screen, Macbeth and King Lear, while his visual composition was influenced by another Westerner, John Ford. However, in 1960, Kurosawa's 1955 masterpiece, The Seven Samurai, was transplanted to Hollywood by John Sturgis. And in that same decade, the Hollywood Western, in danger of tottering into irrelevance, was revitalised by European director Sergio Leone with A Fistful of Dollars, the plot of which was lifted wholesale from Kurosawa's Yojimbo. Watching Vajda, it is almost impossible not to think of Vittorio De Sica's 1948 masterpiece, Bicycle Thieves. But where De Sica presented the bicycle as a symbol of survival, under Mansour's direction, the bicycle symbolises liberation. Both films depict a quest for a bike, and accordingly Mansour adopted a filming style similar to De Sica. As such, it is yet another reminder of the profound impact Italian neorealism continues to have. Mansour has repeatedly declared neorealism to be her primary cinematic influence, and the straightforward presentation, both visual and sonic, proves just how indebted she is to the movement. One of the traits of neorealism was the intention to present life as it is lived by ordinary citizens, and that involves filming on location. But, however startling that may have been to audiences back in the 1940s, it was much more than just a challenge to Mansour in 20th century Saudi Arabia. Because of strict religious laws, she was often not permitted to film the scenes out in the street. Instead, the director was confined to sitting in a van and watching the footage on a monitor while the crew filmed outside and she communicated with the cast via walkie-talkie. And that obstacle was mirrored in the film when Vajda and her girlfriends have to stop playing outdoors and move inside when a group of men suddenly appear on a nearby rooftop. Although more heavily plotted than the script Cesare Sabatini wrote for De Sica, Mansour's film operates in a similar fashion, gathering a collection of events and observations in order to build a wider picture that intersects with the obvious and subtle realities of being a woman in the Arab world. For instance, when she is at home, Vajdat looks at the family tree, an ancestry that declares only the names of the men. And it is against that invisibility that Vajdat's mother struggles to validate her existence. She did not give birth to a boy and, so in her husband's eyes, failed in her duty. Doubling that sense of shame that both Vajda and her mother infer 
is the strained relationship between mother and daughter. While Vojda wants to buy a bike, her mother wants the return of her husband. And within that perspective, the bike comes to represent independence, while the man symbolises status and stability. The great thing about the film is that the villain is not personified. Instead, and just like Bicycle Thieves, the antagonist is society at large. And within that framework, Mansur is able to map out the frictions and friendships that play between the women in the story. Most obvious is Vajda and her mother. After that, there is the ever-present but never seen friction between Vajda's mother and her father's soon-to-be new wife. Then there is the tension between Vajda and her schoolteacher, Ms. Husa, played by Ahad Kamel. While Vajda wears Converse sneakers instead of the prescribed patent leather slip-ons, her teacher wears Louboutin pumps with her kneecap. All the while berating the girls to be silent in recess because a woman's voice is her nakedness. Echoing this is the moment when we hear Vajda listening to Tongue Tied by American alternative rock band Group Love. Husa intimidates the children in order to conceal her own marital affair. But it is also Ms. Husa who announces the competition to recite passages from the Quran, the prize for which just happens to equal the 800 rial needed to purchase the much coveted bicycle. So Ms. Husa is both gatekeeper of and a gateway to Vajda's dream. Here is Kamel speaking at the 2015 Dubai International Film Festival of her own experiences in fulfilling her ambition to be an actress and a filmmaker. I don't think it's very much different. I think just becoming a filmmaker is quite hard to begin with, you know, trying to tell a story. Uh, being a woman actually added, um, it was an added bonus. Being from Saudi was an added bonus because there are very few Saudi women who are doing what, what I'm doing. So in a way it opened the door and I hope that my work is what got me through that door, you know, because I don't think being a woman or being Saudi um, should necessarily mean that I'm a good filmmaker. I hope that my work speaks for me, but definitely being a woman and Saudi open doors. There are precious few films that admit to the joys of riding a bike. Jacques Tati's Jour des Fêtes, Peter Yates's Breaking Away, and Danny Boyle's 127 Hours spring to mind. After that, you have to settle for mere sequences, as in François Truffaut's Jules Jim, Steven Spielberg's E.T., and Luca Guadagnino's Call Me By Your Name. For obvious reasons, Vojda is different from all of them. And because of that, it is a quietly jubilant film, depicting and negotiating the many obstacles women face in Arab culture. Yet it is also a quietly provocative film. It is widely understood that the group that controls language controls society. I wonder then just how film language might have been different if women had been more central to its development over 100 years ago. Would mise-en-scene and editing styles be that different? Would cinema have addressed other issues earlier? Would cinema have returned more quickly to Saudi Arabia? 
And would there be a greater space for Saudi films by Saudi filmmakers in Saudi Arabia instead of American blockbusters? Mm -hmm.